0: Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. We'll be picking up in verse 20. And some of you may be wondering, where are the slides? Well, there's technical difficulties this morning. But the good news? It doesn't change being able to teach God's Word. His Word is in front of us. Some of you have paper copies, some electronic copies and that's fine. We're going to be picking up where we left off last time, and this entire passage has been dealing with Israel's only Lord and only Savior, which is Jehovah. And so we're going to pick up in verse 20, and there's a challenge again, and throughout these last few chapters. Isaiah has been encouraging them to trust God that he is the only God there's none else and he's been challenging the issues of idols and idol worship and idols ideology that is all around them in the pagan Nations and last week what we did is we covered a few things about pagan ideas And I'll just kind of after we read the scripture Mention those in passing, but they aren't different from then to now. The same basic ideas come across in pagan ideology and pagan gods. So pick up in verse 20 of Isaiah 45, it says, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together, who hath declared from this ancient time, who hath told it from that time. Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior there is none beside me look unto me and be be ye saved all the ends of the earth for i am god and there is none else i have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear surely shall one say in the lord i have righteousness and strength even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. and the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified." And so in verse 20, we see there's a challenge for the nations to come together. There's these pagan ideas Some of them are the fact that, uh, and this is what's being taught in our schools, I think Wayne mentioned it last time, that a lot of this is now being taught as fact in our schools, and that is that the beginning was matter and chaos. There's this cosmic ooze and then boom. Uh, This theory is now accepted by fact. Now I have my own boom theory, and that is God said it and boom, it happened. But that's different than what they're teaching, okay? They're teaching a theory that out of nothingness and chaos comes order and what we call the creation, and nothing could be further from the truth. They deny that God is outside of creation. They believe that as part of creation, there were many gods that came out of that, and if you look at what they do concerning the gods. It's more like a genie in the bottle. And Isaiah has been refuting this. He's repeatedly and systematically refuting these pagan ideas and pagan thinking because it has infected his people, the people of Israel, God's people. And so in verse 20, Isaiah picks up and he starts with the phrase assemble yourselves and come draw near together and he identifies who's supposed to be coming he says ye that are escaped of the nations and so in my mind and i could be very easily wrong on this but i try to figure out okay when isaiah is saying this who is he saying it to and in my mind this challenge will be fulfilled when Christ comes back a second time. But it could be the people of his generation, it could be the people of the time period of the Babylonians. Um, I don't have a, you know, firm, thus saith the Lord, here's how it is. And so when you look at this, um, he doesn't look at things chronologically, he looks at them as to what Messiah is going to do, um, or is doing. And so in this case, he says, come ye that escaped of the nations, and to me that would tend to indicate um, either those nations like Babylon when Persia took over, or it could be at the second coming those that survive through that. But his comment is the same, no matter which age you're talking about. What is he saying to them about their gods? It's in verse 20. What's he saying to them? Okay. The key thing is the wooden graven images can't save. They can't do a thing. And he's been repeating this. In fact, what you'll find is we have been through at least two or three cycles where he says, here's the idols. They can't speak. They can't hear. They can't walk. They can't do any of this. They can't think. And they definitely cannot save. And so he's telling them, here's the bottom line. None of your gods, no matter how powerful you think they are, can save. And then he goes one more step, he says, if you think differently, I'll even let you work together. See if united you can come up with an answer to what your gods can do. And so if you look in verse 21, he says, tell ye and bring them near and let them take counsel together. And so his comment is your gods can't save, come present your case. Of what you think they can do which isn't much and by the way I'll even you let you work together because you can't win there's nothing that you can do conspiring together to make your gods any different than what they are which is just a chunk of wood covered with metal and so in chapter 45 verse 20 and 21 the biggest thing that he's doing is he's challenging the survivors of the nations to come present their case about their idols And at the end of that he says who has declared from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time have not I the Lord? There is no God beside me and so his key point is even if you might have a fraction of a little piece of something these idols can do they can't even hold a candle to Jehovah they're nothing like him he is totally unique and different and so he basically starts out in verse 21 and he says only he can tell the future it's kind of interesting to me we live in in fixed time We have one minute that follows the next minute that follows the next minute God is outside of time He's not subjected to time you and I live Right now in time where one thing happens then another. we don't know what tomorrow brings But God lives outside of that and so he highlights the fact That He can declare things from the ancient time He also highlights the fact that he is just look at verse 21 the last part of it He says a just God and a Savior and so unlike the idols God can declare the future Unlike the idols God is just Unlike the idols God is the Savior He will save First and foremost, he's declaring to them he's going to save Israel. But we find in this also hints of spiritual salvation that's beyond just Israel. And we'll see that. In fact, really, the very next thing, look at verse 22. Who is involved in verse 22? Jesus. Okay. Jesus is the Savior in 22. He says, Look unto me and be saved. Reminds me of the verse in the New Testament that says, If I be lifted up, this is Jesus speaking, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Here he says, He's a just God, He's a Savior, there's none beside Him. And then in verse 22, He says, Look unto me and be saved, Israel. Oh, okay, oh So, it's an invite to anyone and everyone. In fact, many will use the phrase, it's the whosoever will. Whosoever will may come to the Savior and be saved. And so we see both the physical salvation that Isaiah is offering, but also it goes beyond the Jews, which hints at, The spiritual salvation, the salvation that you and I are so thankful for that we read in Ephesians 2 about God who's rich in mercy and has loved us with a great love, has saved us, and it's by grace. And so Isaiah is saying the same thing, that God will save, only God will save the world. Will the idols save the world? No, never going to happen. Will the idols even save the person worshiping them? No, they have no capability. And Isaiah has been over and over again repeating that point that God only can save, the idols will not save, and only God can save, that He is unique. And so we see that God saves. I think it's kind of interesting he highlights the fact that we're to look into him and be saved all the ends of the earth and he emphasizes he's unique and different but look at verse 23 how do we know that God's word is true go ahead Bobby okay he swore by himself why do you think God swore by himself know no one or nothing is higher than God and so by himself who is the highest of all things that could be sworn by god has made these promises now i think it's also interesting he swore by himself what else does verse 23 tell us about god okay Ron remembers, I think, the verse in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and that's, I think, somewhat of a quote of this verse. When I saw it, I did the same thing you did. My mind went to Philippians chapter 2. I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn there. This way you can keep your place in Isaiah 45. It says, Wherefore, speaking of Jesus, wherefore God hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Philippians 2 9 through 11. And so Isaiah gives us kind of the previews of coming attractions. Um, for some people they would say spoiler alert, but guess what? Aren't you glad that God told us what he was doing? I am because you can look back and you can see where Isaiah didn't understand all of it I think he saw it through visions and through God revealing it But I don't know they totally saw it if he did he wasn't allowed to share it because when Jesus came the first time He needed to be rejected. And I think if there was too much information, they would say, no, we can't do that. This is truly Messiah. But Isaiah tells us that God swore by himself. The other thing that I thought was interesting is he said, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. One of the things that I can't encourage myself and you enough is Share with people what God's Word says. Our words are treated as just like anyone else's opinion. But God's Word won't return void. God's Word accomplishes the effect in our heart. Now, when you first share God's Word, sometimes the reaction may not be positive. But you can be certain that God's work is going to work in their heart in ways what you and I say won't. And so God's word is in righteousness. It's not gonna return void. And then as we already read, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I think like we just mentioned, Philippians is quoting parts of Isaiah there to highlight the fact Jesus is the recipient of every knee bowing. Messiah has given himself to purchase for us salvation and peace with God. And so God has given him a name above every name, and that name is the name of Jesus that we should all bow and confess his name. Now, the other thing that Isaiah points out here. Is the fact that God, in verse 24, it says, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Who gets righteousness and strength there? Those who believe. Okay, those who believe. If you look at this, those who come to God, those who believe God's word, are given righteousness and strength. How important is that? determines where we spend eternity. Ron said it well, it's all that matters. Um, Everything rises and falls on the fact that God gives to you and I the righteousness of Christ and he takes from us and it's the doctrine we call imputation where we're given Christ's righteousness and our unrighteousness even if you want to call it self-righteousness, which isn't righteous in God's eyes, Jesus took upon himself and paid the price for our unrighteousness on the cross. There was another verse that kind of tied to that. Um, I'll read it to you, and I think you'll recognize it. Romans 3, and 23, it says, Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A lot of times we remember the short verse, verse 23. But before that, it highlights the fact that the righteousness of God comes upon all who believe. And if you look at what Paul is teaching us in Romans... It comes right out of Isaiah. The same ideas are already brought up. And in verse 24, I'll just read it again, it says, Surely shall one say in the Lord I have righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come. And what happens to everyone that doesn't come? Okay, at a minimum, you can say they're gonna be ashamed at a minimum. In fact, I kind of wonder, I don't know for certain, but I know that there's the Great White Throne Judgment. And at that judgment, it says that the books will be opened, and I believe personally from other passages that for each one of us, there's probably two books that are going to be opened. The first book is the Lamb's Book of Life. And I think if that book is opened and our name is found there, then the second book doesn't get opened. Um, That's just my opinion. I can't prove it. The Bible doesn't say it that way. It does say that the Lamb's Book of Life is opened. And it mentions that people's names are blotted out, which I think is kind of a neat thing. Because if you think about it, it shows just the kind of love and mercy that God would have upon us. It basically implies, by names being blotted out, that it starts out with everyone's name there. And then when we reject Christ for the last time, that's when our name would be blotted out. That's at least my understanding of those passages. Now, the Other book that might be opened, and I think is opened at the Great White Throne Judgment, which is of the people that are not righteous, that don't have Christ's righteousness, that book is, I believe, the book of a person's works. And we'll be judged by those works. There's just one problem for most of us. As good as we might think we are, those works are going to condemn us. And that's where Romans 3:23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God if those books are o- that book of all my works was open. I would just assume God burned that book. Okay. Um, I would rather enter heaven with just one thing my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and everything else can just go away. I don't want to know good or bad. Um, the reality is, is, it doesn't measure up to God's righteousness. And so here Isaiah is highlighting the fact those that are against Messiah, those that are against God and his salvation, they're going to be ashamed. Now I don't know if it's because of their works or just the fact they rejected God, but either way, I don't think any of us like being put to shame. It's not something that we raise our hand, volunteer for. Um, It's a way that God made us to realize that shame is not a good thing. And so here, Isaiah highlights the fact those that are incensed against God, those that are against God are gonna be ashamed. And it says then in the very last verse, verse 25 of chapter 45, And the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and show glory. And so Israel, when it's all said and done, is going to be justified. And I think if you think about the news that we see on the TV today, Israel is trying their best to do what is the most peaceable and amicable solution. But you look at Almost all the nations throughout the world and they're trying to make Israel look like they're the bad guys when they didn't start this war and the other thing about this is When it's all said and done Israel will be protected by Jehovah I Would not like being on the wrong side of this war (laughs) Because God has multiple ways he can deal with this Um, He's not surprised. He's still on his throne ruling sovereignly over his creation and Israel is his glory and He's not going to let the ideas of man nor is he going to allow Satan who's the prince of the power of the air to Interfere what he with what he plans to do and so Isaiah has brought all of this up and he's highlighting the fact That the idols are nothing There is none beside Jehovah God is uniquely God. He is transcendent above his creation and Nothing is going to change that he's going to be able to tell you the future if he chooses and he's not bound by time and so all of that is kind of summarized in this last portion but now in verse 1 of chapter 46 it's kind of interesting isaiah is starting to shift the focus a little bit he's shifting it to what is going to happen in the future and the the concerns that Israel will have when that happens. Verse one of chapter forty-six. It says, "Bell bow- boweth down." Bell boweth down. Say that five times real fast. <laughs> Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon beasts and upon cattle. Your carriages were he- were heavy loaded. They are a burden to the weary beast. I am not an expert on idols, don't ever want to be. But does anyone know what idol or god Bell was, as well as Nebo? Roxanne? Uh, could be. Like I said, I'm not an expert on these. Um, it's a possibility. I'm not going to say yes or no, because I really don't know. But that does come to mind. mind too is Baal worship versus Baal. Okay. Linda? Baal was the top five? That was the most favorite one. In most of them worshiped. Okay. So it was considered a favorite god amongst some of them, and most of them seemed to worship that god. Nebo, where'd he come from? Yeah, That's not quite as popular. Can I throw out a guess? You may throw out a guess, absolutely. Pardon me? Egypt? Uh, actually, that's a great guess, but not the right guess. <laughs> And by the way, I would have probably said Egypt too, because my guessing is just just as uh, oblivious to where these gods are. So don't feel bad. This, this is a, a, an idle trivia test, which none of us, I hope, would pass. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, if you think about this, and it took me a minute to to really yeah. equate it, and it took a commentary to kind of explain it to me, but the focus Israel is thinking Assyria is going to come in as a superpower and defeat them. And they do come in. Assyria comes in and defeats the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom eventually is going to be conquered by Babylon. And so it's appropriate that God would put in his word, Isaiah speaking to the southern kingdom, hey, the gods of Babylon, and by the way, Linda hit this nail right on the head, these were their most prominent gods. These were the two gods where if they had a festival or something like that, these were the ones that probably were carried on the uh, weary beast that's mentioned here. And so the highlight is Isaiah is now starting to contrast the gods of Babylon. And think about why he would do this. The pagan ideology is, if you and I went to fight each other and one of us won, whoever won, their gods are stronger than the gods of the person that's defeated. So in Israel's mind, and especially the mind of the pagan nations around them when Babylon conquers them their immediate thought is Jehovah's not powerful enough Israel's God is weaker than the gods of the Babylonians that would be their argument and so here these idols are and with one verse Isaiah says okay let's Let's talk about this. And he says here's the two most prominent gods of Babylon. They're idols, they're carried on beasts, they may be in the festivals and processions, and they may be the most honored, but there's no distinction between them and creation. But there is a big distinction between them and Jehovah. And so this distinction gets blurred in pagan ideology and their gods are defied or deified but their purpose and existence is meaningless it doesn't come across whereas jehovah transcends all that brenda i saw your hand a while back did did i go by and miss you sorry Okay. And Nebo is viewed as his son. Okay. And I'm sure Brenda and the notes that she's reading are accurate. I couldn't verify it because I'm not an expert on that and don't want to be. When it comes to things that are evil, I would hope we would all desire to be simple and wise concerning the things of God. And as you think about all these different gods, Their ideas go contrary to what the Word of God teaches us And I think Brenda's right on with the fact that That's the relationship of these gods that this is in Greek mythology. It's in Roman mythology. This is the Babylonian version of that same thing So in the end you look at verse two, it says they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. When a particular nation that worshipped these pagan gods goes into captivity, their gods go with them. Their gods aren't separate. They're just part of the, the loot that's taken. You notice over and over again, he says, they stoop, they bow down together, but they can't deliver the burden. People have to take care of these idols. Does anyone take care of Jehovah? It's preposterous. We don't even think that way. When we think of Jehovah, we think of a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, Uh, all the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, all of those things, omnipotent. We don't think about that when we think about idols. When we think about idols, I think most of us, and and I'll qualify this as at least this is how I think, I think of totem poles and carvings, and um, I remember Kurt saying, why is it when they would bring these idols out of the fire, they always look like a piece of cattle, you know. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of things I think of with, with idols. I don't think of that when I think of the one true God, the only true God, Jehovah. Nancy? Maybe that's why all of these other pagan things need multiple gods and idols, because each idol can only do one thing. That's a a very definite possibility, you know, because if you look at, they have an idol for this, an idol for that. Hindus have thousands of idols, and the idea is is the genie in the bottle, they appease the god, and the god's supposed to give them what they want. Yes, ma'am. Ooh. and also all this referring to when Christians disobey like the they, they disobey they did what they want we make our God look smaller this yeah I think I think you're right when it comes to the idea we tend to try and make God in our image which is a much smaller God okay. um it causes me what she just said causes me to think back to a previous chapter in Isaiah where Isaiah said to Israel behold your god and then he described a god that was so large that he holds the oceans in his hands a god that is so big that the entire universe is like a curtain that he can just pull. And he, he describes it as a tent, uh, that the universe is like a tent that God can put up. And so everything around us that we think is so majestic and big, and I, I can think of like the Grand Canyon, some of the pictures that NASA gets with these amazing telescopes, that's just a fraction. Of what God has created and what he can do and so our God is much much bigger Israel is basically being taught the same thing that God is big he transcends his creation and it's it's sad that people think of the one true God in the way that that bumper sticker or that sticker in the window was described where it's too big. The universe is too big for there to only be one God. No. That, that is definitely wrong. And so, Lynette, I saw her hand, then Brother Dalton, and then Brother Bob. Well, I just want to get two things. When Moses was on the earth, and they got to make sense, where it was he? So, uh, they, they had the golden calf, and they said, Here's your yeah." then it also comes, And where God says, you worship the creature rather than the... Ter- Absolutely. So they worship creatures, not the creator. The sad thing is, we all have the same heart condition, which is struggling with the fact that we'll produce an idol so fast, it'll make someone's head spin. Um, and... I like what Lynette brought up Moses goes on the mountain what happens Aaron makes an idol and it's it's a bull or you know some kind of calf and so we make these idols in our own image and God speaks to that in Romans chapter 1 about we won't worship the Creator but rather the creation and so Nothing's changed through there's nothing new under the Sun as Ecclesiastes says and so you look at the problems that Israel faces it's the same problems all of us face and That's why one of the times I read to you something that A.W. Tozer wrote he said Our thoughts about God reveal the most about us (laughs) Do we have a high God, a God that is so far above us that that's how we think of him, or do we think of him just like these idols? I choose to try and think of God as being totally different and above what I see in creation. Brother Dalton, thank you for your patience. You're next in the list I saw of hands. Absolutely Brother Dalton just summarized everything Isaiah has been saying multiple times over And, and you think about it Why do we repeat ourselves? Why does God repeat himself with Isaiah? Because the first time it doesn't sink in we just don't get it when Our children are growing up. We tell them multiple times do this or don't do that What do they do? Exactly what we said they shouldn't do. How do we respond to God? The same way. And so he tells us multiple times, there's no God beside Jehovah. Come to me, ye that are weary and want rest. Over and over again, God invites us to come to know him. And it's not because he wants us afraid of him. He wants us to fear him with a reverence. But he wants us to come to him and let him show us his mercy and yet we run the other way just like Adam and Eve when they sinned they heard him and they hid themselves Bob you have waited patiently I finally got to you my friend I love that. That's a great, great statement. Idols can be destroyed. You can throw them in the fire, you can crush them, you can hit them with a hammer, you can do all sorts of things, and idols ultimately can be destroyed. Now what's behind the idol, which is the God in our heart, is a little harder, but it also can be destroyed. But God came in the form of Jesus his only begotten son, and the world tried to destroy him, and we couldn't. Whereas idols are destroyed, Jehovah isn't. There's nothing that we can do. And the interesting thing is, a lot of times we try and make sense of why are Jewish people so hated by this world, and the reality is, is The prince of the power of the air, I believe, is identifying Satan because Adam and Eve gave him dominion when they sinned. They turned this world over to him temporarily. Jesus is redeeming that world. And what you find is that Satan is trying to gather all this world together. And and Bobby and I were talking about before class, we see this world coming. More and more unified, but it's against the Jewish people against Israel and the reason it's toward them is Satan hates Israel because that's the the means by which God brought Messiah into the world, but also he can't harm God. So his next best thing is, well, I'm going to try and destroy what God loves. And there's two things in this world that I can tell you God loves. And it's without question because his word says so he loves Israel. That's his chosen people. And he loves his church because Christ came and died. And the church came out of the truth that God, you know, Jesus was God's son. And so you look at it, those two things, Satan does everything he can. To bring harm to, why? Because he can't harm God. There's no way he even can hold a candle against God. Um, not even, you know, a, a stick or a BB or anything. God looks, says, it's not going to work. And so I want us to have high thoughts of God. Isaiah is doing the same thing. Notice in verse 3, he continues, he shifted the focus to Babylon and Babylonian idols and their gods. And then in verse 3, he says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. And so he calls Jacob slash Israel by name. And then he says, what he wants them to realize, he says which are born by me from the belly which are carried from the womb and even to your old age I am he and even to this to hoary hairs will I carry you I have made and I will bear even I will carry and deliver you and so the emphasis here is the idols have to be carried Jehovah He's the one doing the carrying. I think many of us have seen or heard the poem "Footprints in the Sand," and it shows the footprints along the beach. And it shows two sets of per- footprints initially, but then all of a sudden it changes to one set of footprints. And the person that wrote the poem writes the you know the poem, and he weaves the story that what happened. Did you leave me? Why are there only one set of footprints on the sand? And God answers the person that is pondering this with the fact, when there was one set of footprints, that's when I picked you up and I carried you. And if you look at it, there's times that we all need carrying. There's times of sickness. There's times of difficulty. There's times of heartache All of those things and one of the things that is nice to know is our God Not only knows it He knows how we feel because he took on the form of flesh Jesus did that and so he knows what our infirmities are like and God is big enough to carry us We have never ever collectively or individually lifted a finger to carry God. But you look at how many times he's carried us, either individually or collectively. We have much to be grateful for. And I I definitely like tying it to Thanksgiving because so many times we take for granted the fact that God has carried us. And here, in this contrast, we see the idols. And I think of some of these big idols that they probably had. I think of the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar made the big statue. Probably couldn't even be carried. It was probably so big. But here's this beast of burden. The idol's so heavy, the person can't even carry it. They put it on this for a festival. And in contrast, Jehovah carries the whole world. He can put all his creation in his hand, even a portion of his hand, that he's that big of a God. And so I'm hoping that through not only this season, but the Christmas season, as you think of Jesus, as you think of Jehovah, I hope you have a big God. I hope you have a God that you realize is so big that creation is just a fraction. It's like he took a thimble off his finger and put all creation in it. It's that big. In fact, it's probably even bigger. That's just the best we can do to, to do that. Interestingly enough, God says he's carried them from the womb. He made them. He's going to bear them. He will carry you. He will deliver you. The promise of deliverance is tied to the fact that Jehovah is the creator. The other thing I want us to realize as he's been talking through these sections and he's repeated himself, the idols are limited to time and space, just like people, the ones that made the idols. Jehovah has created everything And he's not limited by anything. Time doesn't matter to him. He's outside of time, but yet he allows himself to work within time when he wants. But it's all according to his purpose. Well, I hear people getting restless outside, so I know it's time to stop. We will pick up in chapter 45, or 46, verse five, next week, and hopefully this will be something you think about through the week as we get ready to to go into the remainder of this chapter. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you aren't like other gods, that you are the only one true God. There's none other God beside you. Father, we recognize that through your word, through your promises, When we even think about your witness and servant Israel we realize that you that has preserved them and it's hard to bear some of the things that have happened to them but you have kept them as a nation and brought them back into existence because you are the one true God as we come into this worship service father we just pray that we would exalt Christ highly that we would look unto him for salvation from our sins. And Father, as we see the events in the world around us, may we rejoice because we know our Savior is coming back again soon. And so may we exalt Jesus and honor him in the worship that follows. In Jesus' name, amen.